You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with RehabMyPatient.com. And this is session 81. Welcome back to Physio Matters. I'm Jack Chew, and we've got little bits of news and we're going to get stuck into the podcast fairly sharpish one of them being that we now do a daily show called chewing it over which is on across all social media youtube twitter facebook basically a stream of half an hour at your lunch break half past 12 till one o'clock also exists after the fact people have been listening afterwards uh, we launched that this week and therefore a lot of the news that we might or the things that we want to discuss that are topical, that all goes there. Um, and so it means that these intros don't end up being 15 minutes long, as some of you have been irritated by and others recognize that when you do want some news from us and you know what's going on, especially in Around Therapy Live. So we'll try and keep these a bit briefer from here anyway. Um, therapy Live Sport. We've got a swim, bike, run show, uh, which is going to be a smaller one than the therapy live we did in June. It's going to be 500, sorry, 5,000 tickets uh, rather than the 20 plus thousand that we did in June. And we will repeat that big show uh, as, as large as we can uh, in the summer. But we're going to do this little sub show in the meantime, which is going to be brilliant. Um, half of those tickets have gone already. So snap them up if you haven't because they're not going to last. Uh, it's only been out 48 hours. We've sold half the tickets. So go and uh, I say sold. They're free tickets. You can donate if you wish. Uh, you can also buy the content after for, for viewing after the fact for a discount. So have a look on there. If you haven't, across all our social media channels, Therapy Live and Physio Matters. Physio Matters podcast is going to soon be a podcast network. This month, we launched some new shows with some friends of ours uh, in various different fields. I don't want to give too much away, uh, but we are basically going to be a podcast network, which is going to have uh, different shows for different, uh, not just body parts, but sectors of the industry. Um, so it's really exciting. We've got some great new shows and new hosts to, to introduce you to very shortly. So keep an eye out for that. We've also got other projects. We're formalizing our mentorship scheme, clinical mentorship, sort of individualized CPD and guidance. We've got a great system um, for that that's going to be up on the website very soon, so keep an eye out, as well as massive thanks to the First Steps team. Physiomatis First Steps is a student and new graduate project for translating materials uh, for students and new graduates, and they're doing some brilliant work, so check them out on social media. They've got some great shows coming up soon um, for really trying to bring you through uh, in early in your career if you've got a, particularly an interest in, in MSK. So on to today's episode. I've been wanting to do something like this for a while. We have um, not had a surgeon on for a while and knee surgery is a contentious topic or even just generally interventions at the knee um, rather than rehab. We talk a lot about rehab and rightly so. I've wanted to get into the weeds with a surgeon about when things are indicated. How can we stop the um, proliferation of sometimes needless meniscectomies and, and other arthroscopies? But also, how do we not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as is an expression that's always used on this show, and make sure that we're not dismissive of cases in which, of course, a operation is indicated and sensible and, and, and actually best practice. And so the nuances under that are really, really key. Now, Jonathan Bell is the surgeon that we've discussed this with. Uh, absolutely brilliant chat. We ended up probably recording about three and a half hours worth of material so there's some offshoots that we've got available on uh, therapistlearning.com which is kind of us discussing ai and algorithms and how they might integrate into reasoning we've got um 
other bits and pieces about who's and ours of not just surgery, but injections and other injectables, other interventions. Um, it's just a, a fascinating, there's some fascinating snippets elsewhere, but this podcast I hope you enjoy, which is the bulk of, of our conversation uh, about surgery and injectables uh, of the knee and when they're indicated, when they're not. Um, and, you know, it's something that, you know, realistically we want to do more of. And so there's going to be episodes not dissimilar to this um, coming up soon, hopefully in and around the shoulder as well is a key one that we've been asked for. So hope you enjoy it. Let us know, um, especially any episodes that you're wanting from us or, or any themes that you feel we've not covered over the years. We're definitely all ears. So anyway, for now, I bring you Jonathan Bell as we talk knee surgery. I'll see you at the other side. Delighted to be here today with Jonathan Bell. Uh, been been uh, long admiring his work on social media. He's an orthopedic surgeon, specialises in the knee. I understand, or at least the lower limb is how I know him. Um, and so we've we've been wanting to have a chat for for a long time, really, about sort of knee surgery. But for the sake of uh, the podcast not being three days long, we're going to try and zoom in a little bit, um, particularly talking about some of the more controversial topics in and around uh, orthopedics of that area. But also some of the some of the ways in which the relations between physiotherapy and therapy generally and orthopedics has gone over time, and w- what the contentions are in and around arthroscopy, injections, that sort of thing, and it just seemed like a really good thing for us to get stuck into. And I knew that Jonathan would be up for for having a go at some of these controversial topics. Um, I'll let him introduce himself to you all for those that you that don't know him. Um, so thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Jack, and I'm really it's I'm really glad to be here. Uh, particularly as we're going to be on the topic of controversial items. Um, as as you know, uh, I I guess probably most people will know of me as an orthopedic surgeon specialising in the knee. I've been doing it really quite a long time now, um, but I suppose first and foremost, I probably come to this from the background of being a bit of a sceptic. Um, it made me question what I was seeing in my NHS practice before I left. Um, it made me question, you know, what my colleagues were saying and doing. And, and I, found, I found that to some extent it just didn't fit in. So I set up a clinic called Wimbledon Clinics, which is based on an MDT approach, if you like, where we want to work with our colleagues not and have a more horizontal way of working so that everybody's opinion is valid. And I, I, I started that about 20 years ago and I set it up to work with the people I want to work with. And actually, from my point of view, if I can work with the people I want to, that's me being successful. So I've got a really good team. It's not a huge team of clinicians, but that's because there's lots of them that I don't really want to work with. Uh, we work well with our physiotherapists. I um, Just before the NHS, in fact, one of the things that made me realise that perhaps it was time to leave was I'd seen a what I suppose is now called extended role physio attempt on the south coast. I think it was Southampton. And rather sadly, it all fell apart. And what I saw was that it fell apart because of lack of support from the orthopaedic surgeons. Right. And I just thought, that's just, you know, that's dreadful. So, 
actually, I bypassed my colleagues and went to the management and said, let's do this. And we appointed four physios, who, most of whom I knew. And we made it work. And I think that the, the reason it worked is that I could see that the relationship previously had been a junior versus senior. You know, the, the physio was very much the junior. And as a junior, you need to be supported. In fact, you don't even need to be supported. You just need to know you've got support. So all I did with the service I set up at Kingston was I provided them with support. And that meant that they knew they had my backing. So I managed the shoulder service, the back service, the hip service. And, of course, they don't ever need to ask a question when they know they've got support. It's when you don't think you've got support that you feel you need to have help. Well, that's so, it. it's not just it's not just the support and the decision making, is it? It's the it's the fact yeah. that there's this sort of sometimes a looming consequence whereby if you if you yeah. feel that there's something coming down the track, you doubt yourself more front end. Yeah, and I I learned that as a houseman. You know, if I had a supportive SR, I never woke them up because I knew <laughs> that in the morning we'd just sort out whatever I did, and if it wasn't right, we'd sort it out. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, if you're not supported or you're going to get a caning for what you've done, you're going to phone them up every 10 minutes. And it was a really useful lesson learned. So I worked with I worked with four physios and in the first six months, they saw a thousand outpatients. Uh, and now I think and now I think there's probably close on a thousand extended role physios. So if I ever left the legacy, it would be that. And, it, it, you know, and it's a great legacy because. One of the things I could see is that physios, was, physios, certainly in the hospital, was struggling with a career path beyond being a senior treating physio. So, you know, it's an immense, immense pleasure for me to have done that. So anyway, that's a rather long and rambling introduction. <laughs> no, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, uh, it's perfectly moved into what we, what we decided before this as to be the a relevant starting point though is that you know the the extension of scope and the moving into different types of uh, you know the extension of the license almost or what is expected yeah. to be physiotherapy is relevant but also so is the history and i think that sometimes it's people people the hierarchy you've mentioned and it's kind of that it's sort of it would have been a bit it would have been really strange if suddenly um there wasn't some of that or there wasn't some of that hangover that still mm. exists because the way in which historically there would be almost a before true physiotherapy autonomy then there would be a, a sort of almost a dictated treatment modalities or prescriptions uh, almost that instead of mm. it under even under guidance and even there is an argument that under the orthopedic post-operative protocol, there's still a sense of a sense of of, of duty underneath that, where there's a compliance expected mm-hmm. that makes the subordination almost inherent. Now, yeah. that's the history of it. Now, we're moving, like you say, to something hopefully more mature, more horizontal, more respectful of different skill sets. But it does it does take for a, a shift in mentality that you seem to come to earlier than many. But what do you feel is essential to maturing that model, if we, if you agree? Um, I mean, it's without being just rude about orthopedic surgeons. I mean, I think unfortunately, you know, when you when you look at orthopedic surgeons, many of them have come from uh, medical families. So they come from an expectation that there will be a very steep hierarchy. And there's also a little bit of, you know, in fairness, the orthopedic surgeons have rather been commoditized into just another part of a cog in the wheel. 
right. and that the perhaps the power and the the, the status is somewhat diminished and you know the the private car parking spaces have gone and the, the private dining rooms have gone and you know part of that I think was an attempt to dismantle the power that surgeons have but they've not relinquished it very easily and so many of them have come from a background and an expectation that that's how life will be and also I think that you know there was no training in in virtually any part of my training until perhaps some of the more specialised areas on what a physiotherapist is and you know what what do they do and what do they add and you know dare I say it perhaps physio 20-25 years ago didn't help that but it's it's a it's a very mature specialty now with very strong research, very strong and uh, vocal and capable individuals who can champion physiotherapy. And I think that, so physio, to some extent, I think have wrestled the, the, the place they now own, and they deservedly so. And I think sometimes the orthopedic surgeons have had to rather reluctantly accept that you know, their power and status has somewhat diminished. And if they're going to be effective, then they need to find ways of working that are effective. Mm. And it really, it, it comes back to the sort of number one mantra. If you're trying to do the best for your patient, why would you not seek out good quality physios? They're going to make your work look so much better. Sure. You know, and, and, also, so, and, and also, if we're thinking in an evidence-informed manner, then fundamentally there's an understanding that at the, at the heart of scaled functional care is, is only going to be a betterment of everyone and so that's going yeah. to work and and I suppose I've been a bit lucky you know being with being with Claire I you know I can I can quite quite rapidly get introduced and find out and meet physios who really are at the top of their game and it's worth us probably mentioning, Jonathan, because we haven't done you're married to Claire Robertson who's a top-notch knee Claire Patella yeah, patella is the nickname <laughs> that goes. Yeah, absolutely. So a specialist in patellofemoral pain. And so Yeah. Uh, which can make our sort of dinner conversations rather one dimensional. <laughs> but, but, but 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 what it what it's meant is that I have really been able to expose myself to really, really good physio for a long time and 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 I don't need to be embarrassed about asking you know, what does this mean and how does this work and, you know, what is a VMO? Uh, you know, so so it's because I can ask Claire and I've got a network of physios who are now friends and I can ask them questions that otherwise may, some people might make them feel like they're foolish. It goes back to this thing, you know, if you've got confidence in the people around you, you won't, you, won't, you know, your questions don't necessarily sound quite as stupid Sure. Uh, and so, so I've learned a lot about what physio can do. I've, I, you know, I've read some of the literature, but I'm told more about the physio literature, about the physios I'm now surrounded with. And that's, you know, that's a, a really good relationship. It's a really healthy relationship. You know, I'd never heard of blood flow restriction until a physio told me about it. Sure. Uh, so, so, it's, so I think that, I think that when you get into that mindset of thinking, well, look, actually what I want is an opinion from the physio. So, yes, this guy's got posterior knee pain. 
I just really appreciate your opinion on whether you think this is coming from the back. You know, this is a, you know, that starts to become a respectful relationship or is a respectful relationship, I hope. And it means that, you know, you enjoy working together and hopefully they enjoy working with me. I don't want to, uh, for our listeners sake, I don't want to rehash some of the same points that I made. I, was, I had a conversation on stage, which we turned into, which we put out on the podcast with a lad, a lad called Giles Hazan, who's a, he's not a surgeon, but a medical doctor who's special interest mm. in the Okay. And the reason I mentioned that conversation is because I was trying to extend some sympathy as to why I think that there is some validity almost to the expected hierarchy. Now, part of the reason is you guys have, have, have often, in the medical fraternity, not just surgeons, have, have gone through, have, have had to at least comply within a hierarchy to get to where you get to within a, yeah. within a consultant grade. And so there's then, it's almost a, a frustration by many that therefore, and also the, 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 the coming through that, there's sometimes a respect for what that's done, how that's somehow shaped the, the clinician that they've become. Yeah. And, and also that on the flip side, there's no credentialing mechanism at all underneath the physiotherapist journey. They become a brilliant clinician, but often by the fact that they've then, they've then pursued that as an independent learning set. Like it's almost that they've done gone through and barring a few job interviews, they've not necessarily then been credentialed against anything relevant. Yeah. Whereas you guys have actually had to, to sit appropriately validated and, and had the peer assessment style of, of, mm-hmm. of, of graduating through that process. And so I have some sympathy for my medical colleagues and surgical colleagues that that when there isn't that parity of credibility on an objective level i don't know what your thoughts were on that yeah i i you know i think that's that that that's a, a really good point because you know certainly medicine and surgery can be like trying to climb a pile of bodies to get to the top <laughs> and, and you know and you do sort of earn your wings through doing that it's not a particularly healthy career structure Sure. Um, but I think that one of the things that is, is help, really helpful uh, that I've seen over the last, say, two decades with physio is that more and more will be doing things like their MSc. And I do think that that's a good thing. And even really, really good clinicians who I've seen do their MSc come out thinking differently. And I think that I think that gives them a stepping stone to leap to another level. So I think that's been a really good thing is that there has been a, a little bit more of an academic path for right. or career path for physios to follow, which perhaps wasn't available previously. Um, and I think that there are now there's now a very strong academic uh, fraternity in um, physiotherapy, but it would be nice to see more physios doing a bit of both. So the clinicians researching or the researchers doing clinical work, because otherwise it can end up a little bit like an academic echo chamber. And we see a lot of that, of course, on Twitter. Sure. Yeah, sometimes the hive of it really, and people talking past each other because they're not necessarily experiencing that crossover. Yeah. So I think what what I would therefore, and and that that bridges us into that, that sense of one of the most contentious areas really and social media is a hotbed for this but actually it's a irrelevant thing in practice you take, mm. take social media out of the equation the actual practice of orthopedic surgery and it's and it's changes in recent years and the reasons for that being that research or understanding of mechanism of effect has made a massive difference so independent of the actual research where you've had comparative trials for things like arthroscopy I think that beyond that, it's just calling into mm. question structuralism 
and even then understanding the relevance or not of biomechanics in certain instances has meant that it's it's offered a offered a real challenge to orthopedics. Mm. Offered a challenge across the board, but particularly mm. for orthopedic surgeons, which are historically considered to be correcting for structural faults that are especially relevant to someone's complaint of which can still exist don't get me wrong but that that sphere has has somewhat narrower narrowed i would say in terms of our understanding of how how the body works in a musculoskeletal sense so when it comes to that is that one of the variables that that is uh, is threatening uh, to surgeons how have you seen that yourself or do you think that actually mm. i'm mischaracterizing it there no, I think that, look, I come to everything as a sceptic, a really strong sceptic. And as I think I said on Twitter the other day, it's only the vary to which I'm, only the, you know, the intensity of the scepticism that varies. Right. And, and, you know, and when you look at published work, let, you know, let's say the menisectomy literature, I'm always asking myself, so what's funding this paper? What's funding this department? You know, if you're receiving millions of dollars from the Australian government to basically reduce arthroscopy, is that a conflict of interest and should it be declared? Um, You get it. I mean, these departments have to be funded by producing papers. So ultimately, papers are produced whether they're of any use uh, anyway. And, you know, if someone's making a living from publishing papers in big journals, then to some extent that by definition means that they want to provide a polarized, often black and white opinion on something because then it hits the headlines like the sham surgery versus arthroscopic menisectomy paper. You know, that's, that's everybody knows about that paper what they probably don't know is that they allowed them to do some meniscal surgery in the sham surgery patients. But, but I think that the, I think the, the, the arthroscopy debate really highlights the difficulty that we have of being an expert, which I would like to think I probably am after so many years. And this sort of polarized view where, you know, the, the, the BMJ paper that's, that, that really dissed arthroscopy said that not only would we not consider arthroscopy in an over 35 year old but there's actually no further research required on this subject which is an extraordinary statement for a professor to put in a published paper no further research required it has happened a few times in our industry and, and, and sometimes when they're saying that off the back of a conclusion of a of a long body of work in which things are becoming more and more conclusive, and I can kind of comprehend it, but it does seem a bit sassy, really. And I think that's a bit of a uh, bit of a, a tabloid way of summarising. I do agree. In this instance, though, just because you, you don't need to, you, you know, you're preaching to the to the choir a little bit with scepticism. You know, you don't. I don't mind a bit of that myself, and of course, that's my instinct. I think as well. Mm. However. There is, a, there is an end where scepticism as a means of some people justifying therefore inaction or in some ways you take scepticism far enough, you end in some really wild conspiracy. So don't get me wrong, of course, conflicts of interest and funding for, for papers is incredibly relevant and I'm not dismissing that. But it's just that you take that train of thought, unfortunately, some people take that too far and it becomes then meaning that you know, mm. when, when it suits people, they can therefore dismiss evidence out of hand because of those variables. Now, in this instance, are you... Say, because that sceptical instinct I like, but are you sceptical? Because that's the thing, scepticism with regards to the papers in which you then compare 
um, compared to trial arms, you know, again, I'm really interested in, and we'll probably get into to some of the some of the detail there. But it's just that what I was meaning as well is that the calling into question of the of generically of structuralism of a sense of of of, of of pathological structural faults in people's bodies of which are of significant relevance to them developing mm. musculoskeletal pain either locally or elsewhere which was a totally reason if you think about it, it was a totally reasonable model of how we mm. understood ourselves until fairly recently yeah and orthopedic surgeons would be central to that because we needed to change the structural faults in order to recover yeah. um, so are you a skeptic of our movement away from that i think look i I, I, I don't want anyone to think that I never read the literature. I, I do read the literature and I read, I read plenty of literature. I think it's also as important to be a skeptic of your own beliefs. Sure. And, you know, if you're not questioning and being a skeptic of your own beliefs, then you're immediately going to be very open to confirmation bias. And, you know, social media doesn't help things like that because it's such an echo chamber. You know, on, I follow people and I follow people I dislike or follow people I don't agree with. It's not particularly great reading sometimes, but it does mean that I understand that there's another viewpoint out there. You know, I can't really understand the viewpoints of someone working in a deprived area of the UK uh, in trying to provide an orthopedic service, physio service, nursing service or whatever. So to some extent, I need to look at those what those people are saying. I don't have to agree with them, but I need to know there's another viewpoint. Sure. I think that the literature is really important in helping you to move the move the needle on the dial. You don't I, I don't I don't flip from black to white very often after reading a paper. So something like the recent debate on anterolateral ligament reconstruction, you know, initially there was an awful lot of nonsense written about it. But actually starting to bubble to the surface is a situation where I find myself thinking, actually, this might be a good time to do this. So I've done a, I do some in very certain specific situations. Um, and it's the same with arthroscopy. And I don't think all arthroscopy should ba- be banned. But on the other hand, I'm very aware, I do some work for an insurance company, I'm very aware that there are colossal numbers of arthroscopies done. And, you know, one has to question why I would be on the 25th centile for numbers of patients who get an arthroscopy over the age of 50 who walk through my door, whereas there are some people who are operating on, say, 90% who come through the door. There is some... uh, Maybe I'm wrong, maybe they're wrong, but I think probably they're more wrong than I am. So, <laughs> oh, so but, but, yeah. but finding the right patients to operate on, the literature's not really very helpful. Sure. And that's where that expertise model comes in, which one think that that reasoning approach... It's a filter. Expertise is a filter or, you know, whatever you want to call it, sunglasses that you view the literature through. And I think that you need to read the literature, but you've got to... And, and not just, you know, sign it away because it doesn't suit your narrative. But you have to, you have to keep wondering what, what's this paper trying to tell me. Um, and it's, 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 it's not a particularly large body of work that's used to justify the non-menisectomy argument. And there are colossal problems if you if you just read the top line paper, you know, the paper published in the BMJ or the paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, 
what you need to do is go and read all the papers that that's based on and then the references within there, which I've done. So there are a few review papers on meniscectomy published. And what you need to do is read the review paper, then get all the papers that they've uh, quoted and then go back and read there. Because if you look at Mosley's paper on uh, sham surgery, so lavage versus um, arthroscopic surgery within the knee, mm-hmm. they justified doing meniscectomy in the sham surgery. Why? And they said, well, because it's obvious that if a bucket handle or mechanical symptoms were there, that they should have surgery. Well, hang on a minute. That didn't appear in the, in the sun. Um, and then you read the, the publications they used to one line of paper and one of them doesn't mention bucket handle tear one of them's just degenerative and one of the papers talks about one out of 72 bucket handles so you kind of think well how have these been papers been put together does do they expect anyone to go and dig out a paper from 1982 that doesn't support their argument and i've done that because i can be a bit of an annoying idiot when um you know i get the bit between my teeth and 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 i don't think that we should be arthroscoping all people i think there are very few people who need an arthroscopy for a meniscal tear not necessarily over the age of 35 i think that's a bit i don't think the literature supports that but certainly over i always i always gave people over 60 time three months four months yeah i've probably the literature and the debate in the last few years has probably made me question whether that's old enough. And I would now give, say, a 45-year-old maybe three months before I would consider an arthroscopy. But there are certain certain patterns of um, meniscal problem that you know are probably not going to do that well with non-operative treatment. I want to, uh, I think one of the, as a matter of style, I think for this conversation, I think I'm going to be highlighting certain cases and, and then tweaking the dials of it a little bit to try and tease out as to what you feel sure. the threshold and what doesn't. And I'm about to get stuck into that. But before I do, I don't think, because you're, you're pointing in around the, the, the literature and the shortcomings of it. And my, my sense of, of, of your conclusion of it is that people sometimes get carried away on a theme and then are dismissive of all arthroscopy when fundamentally, as you've described, say 25% of the presenting patients, you feel it's appropriate. And to, to tease out as to why you feel it's appropriate, which we no doubt will come out to some extent when we did discuss the clinical cases, you feel that that, that is a really clumsy uh, use of, of, of uh, literature. Um, but before... Be, I want to try and almost divorce it from, because when we're talking about that, it still sounds like the literature underneath those papers that you're describing is, is um, trial-based research and then conclusions following trial-based research. But what I wanted to just make sure I understood, because I, I genuinely don't know it, but also I admittedly am a, uh, it's, it's my, my bias is that I do, I do tend to care deeply about the sort of what we consider the, the basic science, right? The underlying biological mechanism mm. of effect style of, of, of understanding things, which is one of the driving forces for my flavor of skepticism, really, more so than the literature, which sometimes is fraught with the challenges you've described, whereas our understanding of the neurobiology of of pain, as well as the understanding of the relevance and the existence of structural complaints that we used to think were pathology that we now understand to be at least within a range of normal. That's one of the things that's sort of really borne this out across the Mm. project. 
exactly that spinal knee shoulder they're the classic mm. but we said we wherever we study it with better imaging we seem to find you know labral of the of the hip no doubt is another example sure. where yeah, we, yeah. we kind of come into understand that the range of normal is wider and that pathology needs to be more yeah. narrowly defined or contextualized more appropriately now is there anything i've said there that you you feel um is also got carried away on and that therefore there is anything underneath your argument whereby you think that that there's there's actually structuralism for want of a better term or the relevance of structural pathology to symptoms is is that somewhere that you consider to for us to be getting carried away on a theme on as well well i think i think you know we just go back to the beginning of the conversation you know, when you read when you read the meniscectomy literature and you read these papers that are for or against, there is not one single paper that has ever defined whether they have identified patients with their co- within their cohort with patellofemoral pain. Right. Not one single paper. And as you and I know, patellofemoral pain can lead to medial knee pain and medial joint line tenderness. And patellofemoral pain is 22 in 1,000, and menis- men- meniscal tear is 0.6 in 1,000. So, you know, you're just, if, if nobody's bothered to exclude patients with patellofemoral pain, then how can you read these papers that are then saying, and we saw a tear on MRI scan? Because, again, we know MRI scan identifies huge numbers of asymptomatic or irrelevant tears. And um, Lars Engerbretson did one study where, where they gave patients an opportunity for physiotherapy or they just arthroscoped them. And not surprisingly, you know, the, the non-operative cohort are going to do very well because many of them would have been amenable to non-operative care through physiotherapy or rehab. Um, but it's so, so the, the sort of, level of granular thinking that I've got when I've got a patient in front of me and I have maybe the luxury of MRI, which perhaps some people won't have, is I'm starting to unpick what's the MRI telling me. Now, if you've got a medial meniscus tear and there's a fragment tucked in the medial recess and there's a little bit of edema adjacent to it in the tibia, that's not getting better. And they do really well with arthroscopy as long as you get to them quick enough. So I know, so for me, that patient would have maybe a short non-operative course of treatment, almost invariably followed by arthroscopy. But then if I've got a patient with an extruded meniscus with perimeniscal edema and they're already starting to get a bone edema in the femur, I'm not going to touch that with an arthroscope ever. Or they've got an insufficiency fracture. Well, let's, do, let's use those. Let's use those two examples then. And mm. If you can, because they're two of several examples that I imagine we're going to use as, as yeah. sort of general cases in which you. Because w- what is it about each of those? And this is where you just you know articulate your orthopedic reasoning uh, to a predominantly sort of therapist, MSK therapist audience. Yeah. What is it about those two cases then that makes you say that that's not getting better? from your experience and, and, and why, yeah. and then the vice versa on the other. So I think, to, just to start off, I think a meniscal tear in a 40-plus-year-old male or female probably is the start of a process of degenerative change that will occur over the coming years. So I don't, you know, I've not got sort of, uh, you know, rose-tinted specs and thinks that if I do a meniscectomy that I've saved the knee forever. 
But if you've got a fragment, so the fragment in the medial recess, this is tucked under the deep MCL between the tibia and the deep MCL. I always tell patients it feels like a stone in your shoe and they go, yep, that's right. And I'll remove the stone in your shoe and it'll feel better. Yep, that's what happens. But if the meniscus is extruded, that means it's stretched. That means it might be torn, but it also means that you've lost a really important dare I say it, shock absorbing mechanism within the knee. And that means that that knee is well on the way down the journey of a degenerative knee. And if they're already getting bone edema, you've missed missed the boat or it wasn't appropriate in the first place. So those patients, we really are obliged to try and manage non-operatively, even though it's that's what that's where I might use steroid injection, which perhaps we would come on to. But I would do lots of perimeniscal steroid injections these days to just try and quiet down the edema and the joint line sensitivity around the around the extruded torn meniscus. And as long as there's not raging bone edema and a massive effusion, actually some of those patients get a window. And again, this is an important concept where they then can go and work with a physiotherapist to in, in orthopedic terms put on enough strength to protect the knee in the instance where you have um the, the first instance of case you're describing where you've got a fragment that's ended up mm. being uh what is of, of of relevant symptomatic relevance to what they're describing and it's almost as you say almost a stereotype within that you said stone and shoe and, and, and totally understand those patients how many of those, one of the challenges I think though is that the, the natural sample biases do we all see, like, is there, do you reckon that there is a potential cohort out there that, that have those symptoms that then through whatever parameters around their life they're able to modify their load means that there's a degree of tolerance that they then develop that makes them asymptomatic within the same structural fault or defect that either don't find you or Aren't for, for, the, for sometimes good reasons, given the opportunity or time to f- modify those load parameters or circumstances, or is yeah. it it's actually a structural fault aching to an unstable fracture that that's like, well, why not sort that out? Yeah, I think, I mean, I just at the risk of giving the wrong message, I think there are very, very few situations where uh, an operation done sooner rather than later uh, will make a big difference when it comes to the meniscus. But if you ignore those fragments, then they tend to erode the tibia, tibial joint surface, and you get an ulcer on the tibia, then you get intense bone edema under it. And then, you know, you get you get that in, say, a 50, 50 year old perimenopausal woman. And then you've got a really difficult knee that's going to remain warm and irritable and and probably possibly rapidly degenerate. Um, something a little bit less controversial might be, you know, a a fairly significant posterior horn tear, but with minimal joint surface changes, no bone edema. They're not particularly varus. You know, that patient, yeah, you can send them off for a few months. You can you can watch how they go, and if they're not particularly active, they'll probably get to a level of discomfort that they could tolerate they might be able to say walk the dog for half an hour and 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 be happy unfortunately my population are frequently you know still wanting to play sport into their 60s and 70s and that's not everybody's demographic but I think that but you can yeah you can get your knee to a level that's satisfactory 
and some patients will choose to live with it because they don't want surgery. Yeah, I'm in a I'm in a situation now where I don't I don't work at first first contact in the NHS, uh, especially yeah. in my last role as a advanced practitioner, seeing patients to, to help make these sorts of decisions. And so, I one of the things that really bothered me is what you're speaking to is where across the body, so not just knees, where you've got these conditions that the timeliness of the intervention is especially relevant, and it concerns me. I think that the thing that so the ones you describe. I think it's rare. I think it's rare. Yeah, it's, and I think it's, it's rare, but often physio refers worry that they, you know, sat on something or they shouldn't be sitting yeah. on something. I think the default is that you don't really need to worry about that very often. But more often, that's it. I think that, but that that's one of the things that breeds complacency, though. Excuse me. Is that... Um, because because it's rare, there's often an attempt. The, the suck it and see for a bit, or attempt something conservative, is something that is naturally. I think it's a smart default in most cases. It's just in circumstances that you're describing. I want to zoom in a second because it's super relevant. Is that I just wonder though. Without this is one of the things that I think is a challenge until we appropriately get more understanding in the literature, or at least case series or whatever that. There is a there is a chance though that the circumstances that you're describing that not only are there's a real relevance to the structural change in that instance and then there is a, a deleterious effect to inaction you know so you, it's going to get worse mm. and the circumstances typically get worse these are these are understandable assumptions that you're making from the cohorts you've ever seen it just feels like the it doesn't seem that that's that much of a stretch for me to imagine structural circumstances existing that never present to any of us or never get scanned, let's say. They might present at general mm. practice, they might present at private physiotherapy, but they're unlikely to get escalated because, as I said, especially in a less active population, maybe with some less expectations or with a very modifiable lifestyle in a retiree, mm. that therefore he's like, soddy, I won't play tennis for for." three months i won't even go running for six weeks and they just modify their lifestyle in a way that most of us wouldn't be able to immediately and then the coexistence within that structural fault doesn't escalate as you've experienced it which understandable that because of the cohort you've ever seen means that you see that as potentially an inevitability of inaction when i'm sort of meaning that these are a hidden population we, we don't understand them and so because of what we've understood elsewhere in the body i just sort of wonder as to whether or not that the existence of those people that may eventually in time come out in, say, the literature or, or for some reason they end up being studied and examined by us, whilst we don't know what the crack is with them, sometimes we do make assumptions into the, the fact that, that that granular delineation that you're describing, the mm. clinical, clinical reasoning you're describing is totally reasonable. But the absence of that control group, for want of a better term, I feel like it's a relevant variable for us at least to apply some pondering to yeah, and you know, and I suppose probably I'm seeing those patients in the private sector. You can make an appointment to see, you know, see me within a week. Yeah, uh, you know, and those patients haven't always necessarily gone to their GP, told to come back in three weeks, yeah. take some anti-inflammatories, then sent to the physio. That takes three months to get the point. You know, so they, so to some extent, the NHS almost imposes that waiting time on the patient where nature if you like will take its run its course and the knee will probably settle to a level in most patients that's that, that's satisfactory 
But in my patients, probably 80 or maybe 80% of them will not need surgery. But I'm probably, as it were, managing that non-operative or that wait period. Uh, And I might choose to send them off to see one of my colleagues and say, look, why don't you go and see if we can build on this and get you back to tennis or whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. Uh, and so, so I think we, so we, we probably see people earlier in the, in the path in the private sector, as you know, sure. and, and, and so, and this is particularly why I think in the private sector, you would expect to see low levels of arthroscopy intervention, but not really? zero. Yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's really fair. I think what what why I'm it's so relevant the social circumstance in which they're presenting the time frames yeah, the, the yeah. sector is, re- yeah. is really relevant as well as the fact that when someone I suppose I, I've I've been naive there in in thinking that the same patient that that injures their knee at the weekend and wants to see me on the Monday, who often is presenting even to a physiotherapist sooner than is than yeah is yeah but the interventions that you can do and the, the appropriate management and reassurance of that circumstance is often a really valuable intervention. So what the hell's to do really? So I, you know, that that's one of the things that I think is a contention sometimes within, within the industry. I've therefore been naive to think that the same person in this, if, with, if they have the means, will not pay my fee and will pay your fee for the same conversation. And so I was, I was thinking that you were always seeing things downstream, but you're clearly not. You're seeing them first contact within a week. Yeah, so, you know, particularly people who are returning patients, they'll just ring up. They know how to play the system already. They'll just ring up. and um, Or there'll be some physiotherapists who will say, look, I think there might be a meniscal tear here. I'm happy to try some non-operative treatment. Could you reassure me that's the right thing to do? You know, so it comes back to that confidence to ask a question means that you'll you'll get on and do it. Uh, And there'll be some who just want a little bit more reassurance, whereas perhaps the ones who've been doing it 15, 20 years will just get on with it. They'll know that if they refer the patient to me at six weeks, three months or whatever, I'm not going to turn around and ask, why did you not refer it earlier? So yeah, I think having that, having that, again, it's the confidence of consequences, isn't it? As well, the fact that you're going to get referrals from people that know you're not going to be waiting in the waiting room with the scalpel, so happy to to, uh, yeah. to cut them open. I think that's one of the things that that sort of inspires confident referrers as well. What I want to ask then is that degenerative. Let's say there's a there's a patient now, uh, 55 year old who um, who has then a, a twisting injury with their grandkids was walking on an uneven ground at a weekend and have then developed um, some pain, some swelling on weight bearing, particularly doesn't like twisting, kind of manageable in a sagittal plane. It's a couple of weeks limping around, but it's sort of stabilised. got about 30% better, but it's not doing much better. Um, it sounds familiar, sounds like what their dad had and their granddad before that, right? So essentially they then want to present to whoever with this, with this knee. Now, the examination findings, as far as I'm, I'm stereotyping it, is something that they've then got a story in which it feels like a degenerative meniscal tear, right? For, for, for want of a better, and then this, just, mm. it's not, this is not the podcast we were planning. So if anyone says that physio matters need to cover that podcast where we say what tests and stuff, that's not what me and Jonathan have got yeah. planned. Maybe we'll do another time. But I'm, I'm just meaning that for, for want of a, a similar examination that we may, may or may not do, that's what our conclusion 
are, I want to understand as to whether or not, are you scanning every one of them? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so my, my instinct in a knee like that is if it's getting better, let's wait. But if the, if the knee is still troublesome, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to instinctively get, um, is this, is this, am I treating osteoarthritis or am I treating a meniscal tear that's part of arthritis or am I treating a meniscal tear that's rather more of an entity on its own? Right. So someone who's had it just for a couple of weeks, I'm probably going to just say, look, you're getting better. You're already quite a lot better. Why don't we see? But I exist in a sector where patients will say, instead of, you know, I know my rights, you know, that they'll say to their GP when they can't get an appointment on the NHS, they'll say, I want a scan. So it's very difficult not to scan patients. And and I know that there will be criticism of me for scanning pretty much everybody who comes to me with a knee problem. But I also see my role as a knee specialist as someone who can either uh, close something off or leave it open. And if I do a scan and I say, this is what it is, this is how it's going to behave, this is the treatment path, this is when you come back because it hasn't worked, that closes the file for me and also, more importantly, closes the file for the patient and it gives very clear guidance to the rehab specialist because if the physio is thinking, I wonder if I should send the patient back for this scan because they're still sort of a bit sore, what that does is it creates uncertainty in the relationship between the physio and their patient and that's not a good thing for me to do because I want the physio and the patient to work together because some patients will be sceptical, as you know. Sure. Not, all physio, not all patients are easy to take to physio and put them through the process. So anything I can do to support that relationship yeah. and make it work means that ultimately the patient's more likely to get better without surgery. I'm, you know, I'm never going to say to someone who's got a three-week history you need an arthroscopy unless they've truly got a locked knee. Sure. Yeah. <coughs> <coughs> oh, blimey. Sorry about that. Don't need those big intervals. Um, <coughs> okay, I can go again. Um, what, I, what I wonder in, in those instances is there's two, two key ethical variables, I think, there. There's probably more than I'm missing, but just two that sprung to mind is what, one being that the the ethics of the situation within scanning, I think, is, is, is hugely, hugely helped by a sensible analysis whereby someone is going to be, well, I keep using this term mature, or just, just someone who's in sight of, of understanding the mechanisms of effect that have been challenged, as well as some of the literature that suggests that we want to be trigger happy on some of these decisions, is that on scanning, it's the, it's the way in which that scan is interpreted for the patient and put into appropriate context, age-matched, uh, not selling sickness to infer that someone's broken that massively mitigates the, the the act of whether to scan or not it makes a huge difference what's downstream and you've spoken really well on this before and i'll indicate to people some of your writing on this uh, as well in the show notes so we needn't go all the way into that now but the other side to it that i want to really pick your brain on is 
It does seem relevant, though. Say at whatever. I, I, I said presenting it two weeks. It seems more more likely that that person might have just plateaued their recovery to some degree with modifications at more like six. Say, or we're making yeah. this decision at six. Yeah. And you can think cross sector almost a bit easier at six, can't you? But it feels like it's really relevant to me. But I don't know how much it should be that someone that says I want to scan and they are and they've and they've paid for out of pocket is different to them wanting a scan on the public purse. And it feels like it's a, it's a relevant variable that's, that's seldom talked about in these instances. And yes. I, I see it as being quite, quite significant when there's someone that's presenting whereby the argument of the, I don't feel like, a, you know, this is, this is a presentation, this is what I think is going on, this is the way I'd suggest we mm. manage this. A scan at this point in time, I don't think would change the management. Doesn't mean the scan's ruled out following. You know, I'm, I'm giving you my classic yeah, rhetoric yeah. here. Then they say, "I'd sooner a scan, though." I feel there is a relevance to them taking their checkbook out at that point, mm. on top of their taxation funded, or that, that they're actually just sort of they're, they're grabbing, they're grabbing and wanting wanting a public spend on something that I feel is not a pertinent investigation at that point. Now shared decision making is complex don't get me wrong i'm not saying i then put my foot down mm-hmm. i just think do you think that i've described two ethical variables there do you yeah. see them as being primary or am i overthinking it so i mean look if scans were, if scans were 20 quid and there was a free free supply of them you know freely free, you know you didn't have to wait um why wouldn't you scan you'd scan everybody but you have to under, we have to understand that in the two sectors it's not my job to waste the insurer's money but at the end of the day the patient's directly paying for that out of yeah. their pocket yeah. or indirectly paying out for it because their premium will go up next year if they waste if you know if they spend their insurer's funds but in the nhs we have the unmentionable of rationing and that you have to ration spend and facility and resource, even if we don't like doing it, and even if we think our politics suggest that we shouldn't have to do it. We said we'd stay off politics, but you know, if 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 we believe that there shouldn't be rationing, then we need an unlimited amount of resource. And the reality is, is that we have to ration. So that has to come into the decision-making process. So it means that perhaps you can't close the file as readily in an NHS situation because you're going to say to the patient at, say, two months post-medial um, knee pain, look, I think we should try weight. I think you might want to try an anti-inflammatory. I think you might want to try go and join the exercise class with the physiotherapist because that's how we deliver mass you know treatment in this facility and only those that don't get better will we scan so what's that patient missed out on the patient's missed out on an opportunity for knowing a bit more about their knee and the education that that brings them Uh, and and I think that the educational element of it is quite important to try and to damp down fear because people are fearful of what's going on. They want to know. They want to, they want to know as much about their problem as they can. And that, that is missing in that model. And that is a shame. And it's, you know, it's, it would be better if they didn't miss out on that. But that's the reality of the world. 
Um, the other is that it means that the, the surgeon and to some extent the physiotherapist don't know quite how easily they're going to be able to close that file because it will become open-ended. You know, I've had a month of physio. I've had two months of physio. Oh, my physio's now run out. Then they're back in the system and they come round again through the system. So it makes the system less efficient, but it manages the costs. You were saying about how if the scans were 20 quid and they were readily available, we scan everyone, why not? I suppose that's, I imagine you're saying that with the caveat as, as appropriate that given the circumstances that we talked about whereby you're putting that into its appropriate context and the scan results are going to get, not going to get overinterpreted. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's the thing is that in the circumstances whereby, I mean, <clears throat> do you think that, do you think that with knees in, in your, in, in, with your orthopedic surgical colleagues, do you see that as being a, a problem that has been mitigated sufficiently now? Do you, do you consider yourself amongst peers that, that speak similar languages about how they would interpret scan results? Because that, that's something that I've heard more of from you than I think any other topic, which, and I really, I really like and feel like I, we agree wholeheartedly on this. But it yeah. just feels like that is an area that having heard lots of your work on that, in that direction, and yeah. lots of sensible reasoning-based discussions about I, I. I think you're unrepresentative, to be honest. I don't know what your opinion is. Yeah, I think that there is... Um, so let's see, how do we answer this? I think that there are, unfortunately, a lot of people who treat the scan, not the patient. And I think that's more likely if you're not a specialist. Right. And I think that the evidence is, is that specialists operate less. So by that, I mean knee specialists will operate on a knee less frequently than a generalist. Sure. And I think that the that there is, I'm afraid, a problem with interpreting the scan, and that's possibly lack of experience, possibly inadequacy of training, uh, inadequacy of being questioning, um, and maybe lack of confidence in your decision making. So it's easier just to go with what the scan shows, and that's a that's a that is a colossal problem. Um, I think a really good discipline to try and make sure you don't slide into that is that when you write a scan request is that you make yourself do two things. And the first is you write down exactly what you think the radiologist is going to tell you they're going to see on that scan. So I will put medial meniscus tear, possibly a little bit of degenerative change on the patellofemoral joint edema in the deep MCL. I mean, I put that level of uh, detail and maybe small, small semimembranosis cyst. So I put really detailed information. Why? Because it makes me stick my neck out. And when you're going to stick your neck out, you'll think more carefully about what you, what you do. The next thing is, is that you then make yourself in the rest of the form, ask the radiologist some questions. And you have to ask the questions that if you got those answers, they would change your, your treatment plan. So if I say lateral meniscus, lateral joint line tenderness, please exclude lateral meniscus tear. I think this is patellofemoral pain. Can you see evidence of a horizontal cleavage tear in the lateral meniscus plus or minus a cyst? Um, or... Is there, is there, so another very um, perhaps good situation would be patellofemoral pain. 
but they get a lot of catching, a lot of distinct catching and discomfort, a sort of pseudo-locking. And I would put patellofemoral pain, probably some degenerative change within the patellofemoral joint, especially on the trochlea, because the trochlea catches more than the patella. Can you see a distal flap of unstable chondral surface? Yes or no? And that makes the radiologist look at that and tell you what you need to know. Because if there's a big flap of cartilage on the edge of the trochlea, that's why they're catching. Doesn't mean I'm going to go and remove it, but I'm going to say to the patient, this might disappear if we try physiotherapy, but if it's still there in four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever you like, we'll go and we'll go in and debride yeah, it. Becomes a surgical, there becomes a surgical target. I, yeah. I, I, well, well, maybe you don't like that term, sorry, but yeah. No, 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 it's a very good term. It was appropriate. Um, what I would say, though, is I, uh, I, I'll admit, right, I aspire to similar logic, possibly, be, I, I'm, I feel like I've maybe not heard it quite put that, that way even by you, but then maybe it could have been you that's influenced me in this, this, in this direction. But when, when I'm putting in my scan requests, the particulars and then spelling it out and also giving that insight into to the radiologist, especially when it's one you've worked with for a while and you develop that partnership almost, and that's part of your MDT. You do need a partner. Yeah, you're yeah, you need to partner with your radiologist. I agree. Uh, but the particulars, like you went... You went so far, and it may well be that you were you were speaking. I, I don't know. You might have been being totally accurate to the scan request that you put in. But when you some of the particulars you're putting on that with regards to the potential semi-membranosis cyst, etc., it just feels like you're, you're taking you're taking such a punt. It's almost that you you then you know what what are you? I mean, would you would you, are you just describing the experience you've had in assessing that patient and then mapping that onto your clinical experience that you're like, if I had to, if someone had a gun yeah. to my head and I had to name four yeah. things, this might be, that you're putting these yeah. plus on. And you, and you would be that, that particular, that you know yeah. that that is beyond, beyond the skill set of your, your hands, but you're just putting that into a clinical picture that I wouldn't be surprised if. And you're... you're not just putting two things, you're putting those four things in, even though it's a pun. Yeah, I mean, it comes from, it comes from, I, I, I can't, you know, they, there was that thing that said, oh, to be an expert, you need to have done 10,000 hours of something. And I sat, I worked out one afternoon um, that I'd done 35,000 hours as an as a orthopedic knee specialist. Yeah. And, and I've stopped counting now because I don't think there's much, much point. And and so I suppose when when I'm when I'm looking at a patient, I have got I suppose a real sixth sense of pattern recognition, right? And so I'm going looking for these things, and I can tell you if you've got a, a half centimeter cyst next to your semimembranosis, because I can feel the fullness with my thumb, and physios will understand this probably better than orthopedic surgeons is you are absolute masters at sort of assessing soft tissue fullness you know thickening trigger points you know the uh, end point of a ligament injury and 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 i i learned that skill from physios and that you and, and that you you i know that if the if there's a i know if there's a fullness over the deep mcl 
with medial joint line tenderness, it's probably because there's edema in the perimeniscal region or um, the deep MCL, which is in effect the same structure. Now, I don't always get it right. And I sometimes have to ring a patient up and you say, I, you know, I told you you had this or that. Well, I, I, I was wrong that day and this is what's going on. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad to say that you don't, you're, you don't need an arthroscope or you don't need an injection or whatever. So, you know, I think, and I think your point about the radiologist, again, is really important. You've got to get a radiologist who understands how you think and how you, how you explain things on the forms. You've got to get a radiologist who's prepared to take the point, who's prepared to read your request form because I'm afraid that doesn't always happen. And then you've got to, <laughs> yeah. and you've got to go to a radiologist who's prepared to not just knock out a generic report, but they actually take the trouble to answer the questions that you asked of them. And then, again, coming back to right at the top of this podcast, you've got to have someone who's you're confident is in, who, who you can expose yourself to, you know, so who you can expose your lack of knowledge or your mistake to, and they're not going to go, oh, well, he's not really good. Yeah, if it comes with a heavy judgment, then it's going to break the whole yeah. thing down, isn't it? Brilliant. So one of the things that I wanted to just pick up on there, Jonathan, just to clarify, is when you're describing expert assessment, especially when it comes to the way in which the use, use of hands, what you can feel, what you perceive you can feel, that sort of thing, what are you, because that, that sort of ends up, uh, my spidey senses start tingling a little bit if you're inferring that from scratch you're in a situation where you feel that you are palpating specifics and specific pathologies. Is that what you were meaning or are you suggesting that actually in the context of the clinical encounter when you palpate what you perceive as a difference to a standard semimembranosis that you feel that therefore it's a cyst? What, just clarify that for me if you would. Yeah, I mean, I, let, let, let me turn it on its head. If I wasn't given the opportunity to take a history from a patient and then I assessed the knee with my hands alone, there is absolutely no way I would be able to come up with anything like the notion that, oh, yeah, you know, there's a fullness around the, you know, semimembranosis and et cetera, et cetera. Because really... All I'm using is using my my hands and my manual assessment to try and confirm for me whether my pattern recognition is on point or am I not? Am I so I'm testing my hypothesis. By the end of the history, I think, or I think as you would call it subjective assessment, I think you should have a differential diagnosis in your head. Now not surprisingly, that comes pretty easily these days because you can almost tell in the first few sentences sometimes what's going on with the patient. And the challenge there is not to allow yourself to be drawn too much to jump to a conclusion, but to keep your mind open long enough that you won't miss something. You, you know, you don't want to miss the proximal referred pain because you think you felt a baker's cyst or you know there's going to be a baker's cyst because mm. you're then you then are not a good, good clinician and a good you know most clinicians can get stuff right 70 80 percent of the time not too difficult the one that the one that differentiates is the clinician that can get it right nearly all the time and I don't get it right all the time but I, I strive to make sure that I keep as an open mind and some of the assessment with my hands is also 
you know, it's a moment to pause and just, you know, process what information, what un, what unsaid messages has the has the patient given you. Um, it's you know, when they're lying on their tummy, you can sort of let your your your, your mind wander a little bit just for thirty seconds whilst you feel the back of their knee. And yeah, I am specifically feeling for you know, is the semimembranosus insertion tender, is the post-lateral capsule tender, uh, and it's allowing me to assimilate my thoughts for the next step. Now, that might be to say, sit down and I'll tell you what I think is going on, and often it is, but sometimes it's, hang on, something doesn't quite fit here. So I think the manual aspect of the assessment has a number of um, important roles, and it's not just about trying to have magic hands. Sure. I mean, I I joked earlier about the fact that this wasn't going to be a podcast in which we go about the pros and cons of the specifics within that assessment, and it's certainly yeah. something that I might be I might be pressed to do that show at some point. Yeah. But but in this instance, I just thought we could try and well, because we're talking about meniscal uh, pathology at length in a sense uh, earlier, especially the use and R's around when when or not to to arthroscopy. Just in terms of the. Again, the, the the literature has ended up being clear that that in in isolation or even in cluster that these tests have have limited utility with regards to yep. uh, reproducibility, etc., and the specificity. But it's more for you when you're p- mapping on that subjective history pattern recognition. You're starting to to understand, and even whilst you're doing a, a more general manual exam, when you're do you do, do you do any more would be classically considered orthopedic tests as per the manual or do you see as things that have been considered in the literature as weak that when they're put into the context that i've described they actually have a, a strength and a utility even if it is mm-hmm. just tender spots yeah i mean look i don't thessaly test you know murray test at the end of the day all it is is post remedial joint line tenderness and it's either there or it's not, or it's there a little bit, and you're having to work hard to find it. Um, so I think, you know, that's a fairly useful sign in assessing a meniscus. Sometimes you'll get lucky and you think you can feel a bit of swelling or maybe even the hint of a little fragment or, or something that's got a pinpoint sensitivity that makes you think there may be a fragment in the medial recess. Um Obviously, you know, we're all going to be assessing muscle wasting and muscle wasting is a pretty, you know, it's either there or it's not or it's possibly there. And an effusion is a pretty easy thing to detect. But I don't really look at much else um, as, a re- as a reliable sign of things. It's more just trying to put together the story. You know, why does it, why are they saying it hurts behind the knee? what's making it oh okay right they might just have a little bit of a cyst well that probably is why they're a bit more sore posteriorly so it fits with the narrative from the patient and it's it's all around constantly questioning what you're thinking it's questioning your narrative or the patient's narrative to come up with at the end of the day what is a differential diagnosis and I don't and I don't do lots and lots of fancy tests. You know, for an ACL, I'll do a Lachman and I'll do a pivot shift. I'll do an anterior drawer if I'm not sure. From from MCL, I'll, op- I'll open the knee in extension and inflection. I'm not really kidding myself. I'm going to do lots of post-remedial rotational 
instability tests. I don't, you know, I don't think that sort of stuff's very reproducible. Um, so, so I, I, funny enough, I've I've just taken delivery of a. Uh, so I've written an algorithm for diagnostic purposes, and of course, there's very limited limited things you can do with an algorithm that the patient's going to administer on examination. So there's a couple of couple of in pieces in there, you know, where is it maximally tender? You know, is it on the inside of your knee or the outside of the knee? Right. And this algorithm is going to be largely based on the history. You know, can we recognize a pattern that can take us towards a patient with patellofemoral pain or meniscal pain? Uh, and, and then we're going to test it and we'll see. You know, when, the, when it comes to that physical examination and the fact that you're again, Allowing yourself to just cross-correlate that to the entire context and the history and the story and you know the age of the patient and all the other variables yeah. that are going to be relevant to the likelihood, you know, the um, the uh, index of suspicion being waxed and waned in a particular direction on a differential. That's again something that, uh, if you don't mind me saying, you know, it might be easier for me to say than you, even if you agreed, is that again I don't always feel that that is representative of your orthopedic colleagues or even folk that. That I've interacted with, even with me being as a patient, even in recent times, where essentially it's been weighted in an objective examination. Uh, the idea of the sort of manual testing as being something that is especially more relevant, it seemed, at least in my experience, and from what I keep continuing to encounter professionally, than the marrying that up to the history. Unless, unless this, and this is in circumstances whereby. My letter might not a letter might not even have reached them. It's not as if they're embedding that within a nested context that's been preceded before, mm. you know, with by, sent by someone that referred it. So I don't know if you think that's unfair of me, but it's just something that I think is like a, almost a legacy of perceived perceived expertise of both hands, as well as the structuralism that I mentioned earlier, seems to mean that there seems to be a, a, still a waiting in the orthopedic world towards those examinations. Yeah, and you know there are there are beautiful textbooks with hundreds of photos of all these tests, <laughs> and you know, there is a there is a, as you said there's a legacy, and you know there is some problems I think in orthopedics with it being a backward looking profession at times, not forward looking, and that's not to say that tests and examining the patients irrelevant. One of the reasons you examine the patient is because there's an expectation they will be examined. Uh, you know, and oh, and you yeah, know, yeah. one complaint that you do see is you know, and he never even examined me. So even for something like an arthritic knee, where there's really very little to glean from an examination other than checking that the hips moving, is um, you know you've got to lay hands, not not for healing purposes, but to, to because that's what's expected. And a lot of the time, I think we for, it's easy to forget that what we're trying to do is match a patient's expectation. And, and, that, and then if the expectation is wrong or out of step, then the challenge is to move their expectation towards something realistic or helpful. Uh, and that, of course, then starts to play into the whole chronic pain fraternity's way of thinking. But I think you need to bring all elements in um when i when i when i'm looking at a patient my first question is what do you want not what do you need you know what is it you want oh well i want to go to visit my grandchildren in australia and i'm 82 right 
what's the problem? You know, why can you not go and visit your grandchildren? And then if you can get the patient to Australia next summer, you've, you've done exactly what they wanted. Whereas I think there's a lot of bit of, oh, well, madam, your, your x-ray shows that you've got a very arthritic knee, but you are 80, you know. Here's a leaflet on arthritis um, and it'll eat, you know, I've put you down for a knee replacement or I've, or I've told you to get, you know, get lost. Um, and so there's a little bit too much focus sometimes on um, what they think the patient might need rather than what they want. Mm. I want to ask, we, we said we definitely wanted to try to cover two things, arthroscopy and corticosteroid. And we, we yet to do that really, but it just feels like some of the, some of the, the, the style that we used earlier with regards to revisions and case studies, et cetera, felt like an appropriate way of doing it. But if we yeah, just start do off that. by me saying like with, with, with corticosteroid injections, um, what, what do you feel is, because much like arthroscopy, their utility is always called, called into question these days, which I think is, a, 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 as general rule, a great exercise, right? Why not call into question everything we do? However, yeah. to some extent, the same voices that want to reduce the arthroscopy is not to reduce it, but to reduce it to zero. Some of the mm. similar voices want to reduce the injection rate to zero, like a yeah. conservative zealotry almost. What do, you, think, what do you say? What's your sort of take on their utility at the moment? I think the problem is, is that, you know, when you're in a, in a Twitter sphere or when you're standing in a podium or you're, you're, you're in a conversation of people who are all vying for attention, the, the, what, 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 what happens is that people go for the simplest answer. And they and 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 this and why is that? Because simple answers get people's attention, and complex answers with caveats don't. And it's easier to say steroid injections are the invention of the devil than it is to say, yeah, but under certain circumstances, I might use steroid, and it might depend a bit on the patient's age and the number of injections they've had, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I think that. The way I approach the steroid argument is that anyone who says they should all be banned is wrong and anyone who injects everybody is wrong and then there's going to be somewhere in the middle. And I use steroids really to help patients achieve firstly what they want and I help patients to achieve that sometimes by, by usually aiming to try and keep um, the patient functional keep the patient active, keep the patient able to exercise and to keep the pa- and often to give the patient a window to interact successfully with their physiotherapist. So steroid injections can on the one hand be the holiday and wedding injection. You know, somebody comes in, they can barely walk, their knee is huge, there's 80 mils of effusion in it, daughter's getting married next week or they're going on holiday, and you know you can help them with a steroid injection. Now, as a one-off, you can, nobody really could criticise you for doing that, I don't think. If you did it once a month, of course that's wrong. If you did it three times a year and they were 50, I don't think that's right. If you had to do it a couple of times a year and they were 88, you know, three times a year and they were 88 and really what they needed was a knee replacement, but they're very frail. You know, so it's, you've got to put it into context. You've got to work out what is, and, and it's a risk balance, risk analysis. You know, what are the risks of an injection? 
What are the unintended consequences and what benefit can I achieve for the patient? I think one, so, one of the things that concerns people, um, and I, I say concerns people, I would admit if it was a concerns me, it would be me framing it that way, but it doesn't so much. But I think that what I what I do think folk are concerned about is what happened with regards to the sort of um, lateral elbow coming extension extensor origin at the elbow and the understanding that actually fairly fairly low dose not repeated injections have still been found to be deleterious in both outcome and tissue characteristics in that area in such a way that you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube and so if that followed suit in the knee then suddenly. A totally reasonable, and I understand, as, as we understand it now, a completely reasonable and ethical thing to do with regards to sort of the wedding and holiday injection description that you're describing, whereby, mm. um, you, you, you rightly said, if you, you do that as a one-off, few would, few would criticise you. And, and, and I would be one of them that would criticise that as a, as a practice. But I think that, well, especially if attempted other things, I guess. But it's more that in, in this instance, though, if we do come to understand through through further study that it's not dissimilar to what we've then found out at the at the elbow i don't know about you but i'll be wanting because i'm an injector too but i'd I'd be wanting to ring round those patients almost by way of apology fairly sharpish afterwards i mean you'd have to you know you can only do better when you know better admittedly so i wouldn't literally yeah but i'd almost feel gutted that i could have heard on the side of caution there and actually it turned out that 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 substance is more is more aggressively deteriorating the tissues than we ever thought possible yeah, and you, uh, you know, you have to act with the knowledge you have at the time. And if your knowledge changes and you challenge your beliefs on it and you change your mind, that's okay. The sure. problem is, is when you don't change your mind in the face of new information. And I don't inject around big tendons. I don't inject the patella tendon with steroid hardly, hardly ever. I'll occasionally inject a quad insertion um just because there's often a bit of inflammatory change in the adjacent soft tissues uh, and i don't so i don't inject the anthesis very often you know the the the, the insertion into bone because i am concerned about whether the degradation of the collagen is going to be a problem there but if someone's got a knackered extruded medial meniscus with tons and tons of perimeniscal edema and they can't walk and I know that if I send them to my physiotherapy colleagues, they're going to struggle because the knee is so sore that all the focus is going to be on symptom reduction rather than on return to function. Well, I think it's okay to try a steroid around a knackered old meniscus because that meniscus has probably largely stopped functioning anyway. Um, so I use I would use menisc- I would use corticosteroid around uh, degenerate meniscus quite often. You know, with regards to the, the those rarities, and I don't want to therefore pick on them because they are, as you're admitting, rare. When you start then in certain circumstances, when Jupiter's appropriately aligned with Mars, there may be sort of. Is that not at least a small version of some of the artistry we were, we were sort of scoffing at earlier in the conversation? Um, well, you know, everybody who comes to you with, let's say, a quad insertion tendinopathy, you know, or an enthesiopathy, whatever you want to call it. For every single patient that comes with it, you know, there's an option of a steroid injection. But if they've got really tight rec fem and they've upped their training 
and there's an obvious reason why they've got it. Now, I'm not going to inject them with steroid, but if things have been worked on and things are, you know, the, the, the muscle length is better and they've had, say, six weeks of physiotherapy uh, and there's still an intense amount of pain around there with lots of edema on an ultrasound, well, you know, why the hell not try it? You're not going to inject it into the tendon. You're not, and yeah, you have to warn the patient that maybe you cause a rupture. Not that I've ever, not that I've ever had it happen. Sure. But you, you know, you've got to explain to the patient there's a risk to your intervention. But if you just inject every patellar tendinopathy that comes through your door with steroid, you know that that's wrong. Yeah, it's a different game. It's, yeah, it's I, very I, different. Yeah, but that's that's why. Like you say, the, the, the absolutes on these arguments are, are comical in, in many ways, aren't they? In the, in the middle ground is interesting. And, and I don't inject every ITB that comes through, the, you know, ITB syndrome that comes through the door with steroid because I don't think it's necessary. Often they're not that sore because the patient's by choice rested a bit and they're probably already settling. Um, but yes, if they don't respond to physio, I'll do a steroid. And yes, if they don't respond to the steroid, then I'll do a small operation. God forbid. Whoa, that's controversial. <laughs> but, but you know, there's a you know. But I wouldn't dream of doing a, a, a ITB partial release on everybody who comes through the door any more than I would do a steroid injection. Of course, I think one of the things is ITB was one thing that I was I was glad you've mentioned because I was I was thinking of doing when we were prepping for this is that. I wrote a, I wrote up uh, published a, a short case study around ITB injection followed by you know it, how it was nested within rehab in part because of the absence of evidence in that space meant that the, you're absolutely right but but it's something that um, I do I do wonder we we we've got so part of the reason we end up in these discussions and why they're so important in my opinion and why I'm so pleased that we're doing this is because. We've got so few legitimate tools, and it's what I think one of yep. the reasons why there is such such nonsense that can spout around these areas is that mm. the things we're describing, I would sooner, you know, there's a there's a there's a legitimate, albeit potentially contentious, mechanism of effect to surgical interventions, corticosteroids, whereas the the, the sort of um, the alternatives that people then say, well. Why don't we try four weeks of very gentle fi- microfiber dry needling around that area and strap it with this particular flavor of, of, of tape and make sure that the only, you know, and all the other little tight parameters that people suggest are some sort of treatment algorithm that have very dubious mechanisms of effect. I get, con- yeah. it's almost that I'd, I'd, I'd much sooner some of these, what people consider blunt instruments would be, would be used than, than some of the real, real fluffy stuff that I think is is born of a lack of options. Yeah, and I think that you know we 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 exist in we exist in two worlds. We've got the we've got the real world, which is the one we go to in our clinic, and it's the one that our patients exist in. And then we have the world of academia, which is in a in a closed box, and you know and it's all very well to say you shouldn't inject the ITB with steroid or, or whatever, but what are you going to tell your patient? Oh, well, you know, that's not the question. We That's not in our null hypothesis. Well, yeah, but I don't treat null hypotheses. I'm treating patients. And yes, I may have something like hyaluronic acid for an arthritic knee 
And yes, I wish it was a more consistently useful uh, injection that lasted longer. But I've, what else am I going to offer them? Am I going to offer them PRP, leukocyte poor or leukocyte rich, depending on what you believe? Yes, I would like it uh, to be a better product, but it's actually all I've got. Um, oh, well, you shouldn't use that because the evidence is, you know, rather lacking. Well, okay, but my patient doesn't care. Yeah, you know, I always say, always say it reminds me of, a, a, I hope this isn't goes beyond people, but it's like there's this sketch that it always reminds me of in Little Britain, whereby he's going in for very niche items and when they haven't got them, he'll say, I'll wait. It feels like the same thing. People wanting to be being willing yeah. to okay, no worries, I'll wait. So well no waiting's not waiting's not yeah. an option here, I'm afraid. That's properly socially yeah. awkward to suggest we'll wait for the data to come in. So yeah, no, I am I'm sensitive to that. And I think the the sort of rubber hitting the road sort of stuff that we've gone through with some oohs and ahs over the cases in which it feels appropriate and, and yeah. generally speaking, because we've not done tight case studies, which may be one for one for another time, depending on the reactions to this show. Um but I think what, what I what I'd love to just finish uh, finish on Jonathan, if you don't mind, yeah. is where you where you see because uh, almost work back to back to where we started. Really, is considering all the things we've talked about and the contentious areas that we've discussed. What do you see as being your your hopes for the future of co working, as well as the maturity of the conversation, whereby we don't end up being dragged to either pole, where we don't have cowboys. Uh, intervening loosely and haphazardly, but we also don't have the nihilism that seems to be quite uh, on trend, uh, particularly in and around injections and orthoscopy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think what we have to be really careful is, is to pick the people, pick the people who we work with and, and hang with and talk to carefully, because you need a mix. Um, and yeah, you probably do need a detractor. You need someone who goes, whoa, hang on. You know, that's not on. And you need one of those around because you, you've got to have someone who makes you question what you're doing. Um, and you need some people who, dare I say, to perhaps a bit more like you, who are change makers or challenge, challenge the current thinking or want to alter things the whole time. But we're quite annoying people to have around. And you, if you have a room full of change makers running the show, it gets very tiring for everyone because everything's new this week. And then you need the people who, who stabilise and keep things steady and make sure you don't change things every week. So my, part, my business partner, Adrian Fairbank, he's, he's, you know, he's a, he'll go, whoa, hang on, you know, we need to finish what we were doing last week. So you need someone to steady the ship a little bit. And then you need a completer. You know, so, you, so it's like you, you've got to get those right people around you in your, in your clinic and in, in, your, in your department because you've got to have a mix, mix of view. You need to have the sort of professor of view who can tell you what's possible but not what necessarily what's wise because you, if you don't have that mix, you're, you're going to end up with one-track thinking. I think that we're, when it comes to, to building clinical teams, again, you've got to just seek out the people who, who are going to put the patient's interests first. And, and I think that 
that sounds a bit glib to say it, but it's actually quite important. And all of the clinics around our area who we work with, physiotherapy clinics, all the clinics we work with well are much more interested in what the patient's doing and what's happening to their patients than whether they've raised more money from private equity or whatever else they're trying to do. And, and so I think you've just, got to, you've just got to find honest people to work with who don't mind being challenged and don't mind um, and, and will call you out when they think you're being an idiot. And it's a really interesting point to, to find people like that of all wings this, of a discussion like that's the that's the thing that's really one of the difficult. things it's not just about yeah it's the the, the 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 skeptic but also the and it's it's not always a fair use of, of terminology but the, the skeptic versus the person that's conserving what what is the status quo in any given particular topic having mm. a good faith discussion between those two is, is so valuable and like you said it doesn't even mean either of those two are actually the ones that are going to see either any change or not change through so it, i think what gets sometimes missed is this notion that that actually that and I, and people sometimes think that i'm of this persuasion that, that agitation is everything and it's just like people sometimes surprised that uh, when i go into back for a status quo that i think is actually the right answer but it's more to do with having that rational analysis and having the right people around that have that dispositional difference and, and i think that that we've we've kind of had a real journey on discussion around orthopedics and and, and sort of ended up playing with some some dated and some new stereotypes within the game yeah. but i think that the, the reason for that is because we need to we need to understand that these things play a part in the decision making that really does affect the msk landscape and that if we if we want to work together and better for the betterment of patients in the healthcare society we're going to need to level up our conversation and make yeah. sure that we can think sensibly in that murky middle ground as we've tried to today yeah i think so and you know on a, on a personal level you've got to build options for yourself not 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 take not necessarily um uh, keep your options open. You've got to make your own options. You, uh, you know, I tell my kids, you've got to create the life you want because otherwise someone will create it for you. And that's about creating options. That's about setting, thinking about setting up a private orthopedic clinic when no one else in the country was doing it on the first day of my NHS job. Why? Because I wanted to create an option. I wanted the option that if I ever got sick of the NHS, I could leave. Right. I wanted to, and I wanted to build it in a way that would be a place where I wanted to work with the people I wanted, with people I like, uh, and have the freedom to make those choices. Now, those only, those things only come about if you think about think about and act upon it. And a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, aren't you a bit lucky?" And you know, no, because I thought about this twenty years ago, and you're thinking about it today. So, <laughs> and you think it. You think it just happened. It didn't just happen. You know, it takes a lot of thought. It's on that that I, that I feel like I want to pick your brain. We're going to go into Physio Matters Extra Time, which is available at therapistlearning.com. And I'm going to ask Jonathan about what his top tips are for people that want to, to garner referrals from orthopedic surgeons, as well as what he wants from his referrers in turn. And so uh, do, do check out us over on TLC for that. But I want to finish by thanking you, Jonathan, for your time today. For more on Jonathan for that, then tune in elsewhere. For, for so more on Jonathan. If you could just wrap, so it, wrap this in a bow, yeah. Where, where so, do we find more from you? So for, for more on me, 
So I have a clinic called Wimbledon Clinics. The website is uh, self-explanatory, wimbledonclinics.co.uk. And I am on Twitter, uh, Bell Knee Surgeon. And I I do a little bit on Facebook, not very much. I'm not sure I fully understand or are young enough to understand Instagram. But um, I occasionally write something. Um, If I do, I'll probably put it on the website. I'm happy to give talks and I'm happy to chat to people if they want advice about patients. You know, what I try and like to do is keep an open dialogue. I'm happy for people to email me and, you know, ask questions. And if they want to email me, you can get the email off the website, um, womdenclinics.co.uk. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. And we will all the all the material that we've been describing in terms of literature, etc., we'll be referencing as well as some of the things that Jonathan's therefore pointed out, including some of his writing, we will make sure we make available to you all. But thank you so much for your time today and we'll speak soon. Pleasure. Thanks very much. And that was session 81. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, fascinating chat with Jonathan. And not the last we're going to hear from him. He's going to be um, basically speaking on a panel. Obviously, I don't want to give too much away, but he will be present at Therapy Live Triathlon talking about some of the challenging uh, and interesting discussions around when surgery is indicated in athletes, particularly in and around the ITB or interventions in and around the ITB, which I think is fascinating. So um, I said I won't give much away. I've given quite a lot away there, um, but uh, more, more on that very soon. So that was, you know, I don't want to do too much of an afterword here, uh, but we've got, we've got a lot of uh, interesting offshoots of that conversation that i feel are inevitable so please do get involved on social media as is interesting about the physio matters communities i want you to pass comment do you feel that uh, you want to challenge anything that i or jonathan said or the conclusions that were drawn from from our conversation do you think it's as complex as we're making out or we've oversimplified it or whatever uh, we'd love to hear from you again therapy live sport tickets are available very i mean you're listening to this on the sunday there might be a few tickets we uh, it's 48 hours it's been out and we sold half of them, so it may well be that it's sold out. If it hasn't, then it will be soon to be sold out when you, by the time you're listening to this next week. So please do snap them up. As I said, we've got a lo- load of exciting projects going on, including the daily show uh, for half an hour where we sort of talk about topical issues and give you an opportunity to come on the show, uh, commentary uh, and commentating and, and offering comments on there uh, across various different platforms. So really interesting uh, times for us. We've got loads of stuff going on and, and basically really wanting to value your attention and make sure that this information and, and, and the platform is continued to be entertaining, but also educational. So hope you're enjoying it. We certainly are. Um, we'll see you soon for more Physio Matters. And so what we did forget to do is the cheesy sign out. So you've got me this month. You've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing Physio Matters because Physio matters. Bye for now.